Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast. Keep up with us at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We also post the interview portions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. While you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel. If you want to follow me, I'm at JS De Leon on Twitter. That's at J-S-D-E-L-E-O-N on Twitter. If you want to pitch a story, reach out to us on our website, paseomedia.org. For this week's episode, Jesse Fuentes returns to the show. She's an activist, the co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda's Chicago chapter, and the new director of policy and youth advocacy for the Puerto Rican Cultural Center here in Chicago. If you want to learn more about Jesse and her work, give episode four of the podcast a listen. You won't regret it. Jesse was actually one of the first guests to give us a chance when we started this project. So really appreciate her making time for us again this time around as well. Today, we're going to discuss the systemic issues facing youth in the Puerto Rican and wider BIPOC community, how these issues relate to the Adam Toledo murder, what investments need to be made in order to prevent what happened to Adam from happening to others, and a whole lot more. We've made national news due to the murder of 13-year-old Adam Toledo at the hands of Chicago police. What happened to him has happened to countless others in the BIPOC community thanks to state-sanctioned violence. So we're going to take the deep dive with Jessie on what she's been seeing and hearing in her work. But first, a quick note. Last week, we covered the Borinqueneers and their history for National Borinqueneers Day. If you haven't heard that episode yet, definitely give it a listen. I actually had some people reach out to the show asking if women were a part of the 65th Infantry. And unfortunately, to my knowledge, the answer to that is no. But I did learn that in 1944, the U.S. Army Nurse Corps uh, recruited 200 women from Puerto Rico as nurses. So I definitely would like to explore that history on a future episode, maybe for Memorial Day or, or Veterans Day. I can't really um, figure that out yet, but uh, definitely TBD. Uh, if you're listening and you have information on Puerto Rican women kicking ass during World War One or two, or even in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, send that my way, paseopodcast at gmail.com. Now let's look at some news. There's been a lot recently, but here's a few news stories to keep an eye on. First off, it's Earth Day. Woo! In honor of this day, I wanted to throw out some uh, Earth trivia. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Here is your Earth, Earth, Earth trivia. Did you know there are only five ecosystems in the world where the concentration of dinoflagellates is high enough for them to be considered bioluminescent bays? Yes, no? Okay. There's one in Jamaica and another in Vietnam, but guess where the other three are? Ding, 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 you guessed it. Puerto Rico has three of them. They're located in Vieques, Bajardo, and Lajas. If you're wondering, 
Dinoflagellates can be found throughout the ocean. However, it is very rare for them to live in concentrations high enough to be noticeable. To put this in perspective, there must be thousands and thousands of these single-celled organisms to make a gallon of water light up. Just another reason why public lands need to be protected on La Isla, I've been lucky enough to jump into one of these bays in Puerto Rico and it was magical. I'd hate to see this disappear one day because of the short-sightedness of humans polluting our planet. Speaking of the short-sightedness of humans, travelers arriving in Puerto Rico without a negative COVID-19 test will receive a $300 fine. El Nuevo Dia reported that any traveler who arrives in Puerto Rico without presenting a negative COVID-19 test will receive a fine of $300 and will have 48 hours to take the test on the island. The fine will be lifted if the person gets tested and presents the negative result to the Department of Health. This comes thanks to a mandate from Governor Pedro Pierluisi to establish more restrictive measures that allow Puerto Rico to control the spread of the virus and hopefully slow down infections. The new rule goes into effect Wednesday, April 28th. This is a big move. How are they going to track this? I don't really know. I don't know how you're going to track down someone to pay a fine when they leave La Isla. Uh, maybe it's something that they'll stop people at the airport and not let them leave until they pay the fine. I'm not really sure, but definitely keeping an eye on this, figure out what the procedure is going to be. Um, but the flow of tourists in recent months has increased so dramatically. And there's been many people in the health sector that have been asking for stricter protocols. And this is an example of that. So listen to some of these uh, travel numbers. Puerto Rico received 390,500 travelers in March. That's a record during the COVID-19 pandemic. And less than half had a negative test upon arrival. Less than half. From this past April 1st to the 18th, 231,998 travelers have arrived with 48% not presenting a negative coronavirus test. This and other issues are contributing to a spike in cases on La Isla, including a rushed school reopening that needed to be walked back on April 12th, leading to schools in Puerto Rico being closed to in-person learning roughly a month after about 100 of the island's 858 public schools were authorized to reopen for the first time in a year amid the pandemic. Whew, that was a lot of information. That was a lot of numbers. The most important one here, though, is that the total COVID fatalities in Puerto Rico as of this recording are at 2,207 and could continue to climb if stricter health and safety protocols are not put into place. Yesterday, April 21st, marked the anniversary of Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos' death. We've covered Dr. Albizu Campos on past episodes, but as a refresher, he fought for Puerto Rico to become independent of U.S. rule and to be recognized as its own nation. He was one of many Puerto Ricans the United States government spied on, imprisoned, and killed for supporting PR independence. He was jailed for 26 years and suffered radiation poisoning at the hands of the U.S. government for trying to end the U.S. occupation of La Isla. Thanks to friend of the show, Andrew J. Padilla, for uh, sharing this reminder on Twitter. Uh, it was a good anniversary to keep in mind. And he also shared a fact I didn't know, that the prison Dr. Albizu Campos was in, La Princesa, now hosts the PR Tourism Company. Um, Again, not an important fact, but I, I found that uh, interesting that 
the tourism company of Puerto Rico uh, used to be a prison. Um, you don't really see that often. So while we're on the topic, though, of the U.S. government in Puerto Rico, as reported by NBC News, the Biden administration lifted the Trump era restrictions, stalling about $20 billion to Puerto Rico for disaster relief aid. These lifted restrictions were unique to Puerto Rico and had been limiting La Isla's ability to access certain recovery funds following Hurricanes Maria and Irma in 2017. The Department of Housing and Urban Development also unlocked access to $8.2 billion in community development block grant mitigation funds to help the island build resiliency against future disasters. The aid was previously approved by Congress three years ago. Let me, say, let me just say that again. Three years ago, it was approved by Congress, and now it's just being released. Puerto Rico Governor Pedro Pierluisi welcomed the news, saying local officials have worked hard to earn the trust of the federal government, who have demonstrated their dedication to responsibly managing all these funds. This comes as a watchdog report revealed bureaucratic hurdles the Trump administration erected for Puerto Rico to receive aid from Hurricanes Irma and Maria. The Washington Post reported that the Trump administration put up one obstacle after another in order to stall the approximately $20 billion in hurricane relief for Puerto Rico and then obstructed an investigation into the holdup. The 26-page report presents an incomplete picture of the political influence of the Trump White House on delaying disaster relief for Puerto Rico, but Trump's appointed top HUD watchdog found unprecedented procedural hurdles set by the White House Budget Office. Keep in mind, the Post had previously reported that Donald Trump repeatedly told aides that disaster relief allocated for Puerto Rico must be closely monitored because he believed Puerto Rico's government is corrupt and the economy was in poor shape before the hurricanes devastated La Isla. Trump had also told then White House Chief of Staff John F. Kelly and then OMB Director Mick Mulvaney that he did not want a single dollar going to Puerto Rico and instead he wanted more money to go to Texas and Florida. The White House Budget Office also insisted on overhauls to Puerto Rico's property management records, suspension of its minimum wage on federal contracts, and other prerequisites to access relief funds, prompting questions whether or not HUD had the legal authority to enforce such requirements. So, Trump and his administration just filled the path to, to disaster relief with a bunch of poison pills. This further showed how he held Puerto Rico to a much different standard than the rest of the US. This is just confirming what we already knew. Trump and his administration saw Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans as less than compared to states they favored. Our people deserve better than this. And the need for a leader who sees their humanity instead of dollar signs is more pressing than ever. No, we just mentioned Texas earlier, but on a lighter note, for all you Puerto Rican literature lovers out there, the University of Houston has received nearly $1.35 million in grant funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to establish a free, open access digital portal for anyone to learn about or teach Puerto Rican literature. The primary goal is to make Puerto Rican literature widely accessible through the gathering, transcription, and translation of poetic materials that until now have been physically archived in different collections or not archived at all. 
This Puerto Rican literature project includes a database in Spanish and English of approximately 50,000 assets. That includes things like photographs, manuscripts, poems, videos, and archival materials. This digital archive and additional resources will offer documentation of the material existence and experiences of key Puerto Rican poets from Puerto Rico and from the diaspora. This data collected uh, goes back all the way to 1917. So I cannot wait to get my hands on this database. Uh, I actually tweeted at the University of Houston to figure out how I can get access. So as soon as I find out, I will share it with you all. Okay, it felt like we only got to scratch the surface of Puerto Rico news, but that's all we have for today. Let's jump into the interview with Jesse. Bienvenido a todos. It is the Paseo Podcast. It is Tuesday, April 20th, but it doesn't really matter. It's a podcast. You're listening to this whenever, wherever you are, or you're watching in our YouTube channel. Either way, thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, today, we have a uh, returning guest. We have Jessie Fuentes. When she was last on the show, she was the co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda. She still is, uh, but she yeah. was also with uh, Pedro Albizu Campos High School. Uh, she's since switched, so this is going to be a, yeah. a new little title change here. She, in addition to being the co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda, uh, in addition to being an activist, she is also uh, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center's new director of policy and youth advocacy. So, Jesse Fuentes, welcome back to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. You know, knees deep into the work, really thinking about policy work and how we make some real systemic shifts for our community. Well, we're happy to have you here. We'll, we'll definitely talk a little bit about the work you're involved in and what lens you're looking at that work through. Um, but uh, we started asking our guests this question, and this was before like you came out on one of the earlier episodes. So this is one of the questions we've started off all of our conversations with like maybe 10 or 15 episodes ago. Um, and I know you shared this with me personally, but uh, for people listening, what part of Puerto Rico are you, your family from? Two things. Um, my mother's family resides in Caguas, Puerto Rico, and my grandfather's side resides in, in Ponce, Puerto Rico, and there's like a lot of tension, right, on, on whose barrio is better. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm also half Cuban, right? So I'm Puerto Rican and Cuban, and um, my family in Cuba is from La Lisa, Havana, and I can never neglect that part of me, right? They are the best parts of the Caribbean. As I mentioned before, last time you were on, uh, we talked a little bit about the Puerto Rican agenda. People listening can mm -hmm. go back, listen to that to learn more. But um, give us a quick little elevator pitch because you're, you're, in, you're involved with the Puerto Rican agenda and you're also involved with the Illinois Latino agenda. So what should our audience know about both of those orgs? Absolutely. Well, the Puerto Rican agenda, I've had the privilege of co-chairing for six years now. It's really a collective body of people that come together under a nonprofit organization that really seeks to achieve the self-determination of the Puerto Rican people, right? And we do that in all sectors that Puerto Rican folks live within, right? Education, housing, health, arts and culture. And obviously we, we delve deep into policy and public affairs. The Illinois Latino agenda is really a, a collective body of folks in the city of Chicago that are comprised of Latino leaders that are really pushing an equity agenda. Right. And so we're looking at how are we ensuring the Latino communities across the state of Illinois are receiving equitable resources? How are we ensuring that 
Latino communities remain on the agenda of elected officials and our center when we're thinking about state capital? How do we ensure that Latino communities are not forgotten as elected officials are talking about building um, a better Illinois? And so we are that entity of people that are really holding folks accountable to ensure that our communities are not left behind. Well, and speaking of uh, accountability, um, you know, you had shared a letter. I'd, I'd gotten this email. I believe you also shared it on your Facebook page, but uh, it, was, it was the statement from the Illinois Latino Agenda in regards to the Adam Toledo event, the Adam Toledo murder um, at the hands of a Chicago police officer. Um, in that statement, you had mentioned uh, trying to work uh, towards systemic reform. You had some words to share about how uh, the media, other powers that be in our judicial system painted this young man, uh, this 13 year old. Um, I, I do want to get your thoughts on, you know, what investments you think need to be made in order to adequately support the youth of our city, especially our BIPOC youth. Um, but for people not in the know, uh, what should we know about the Adam Toledo story? Yeah, well, Adam Toledo was a 13 year old boy. And I wanna emphasize that he was a 13 year old boy, right? Because the media has for the last month or so painted Adam Toledo as a 13 year old man. Mm -hmm. He was a young man that was out at, at 2.30 in the morning with a 21 year old uh, man who, who fled the scene at the time. And Adam Toledo was shot and killed by the Chicago Police Department in Little Village. Uh, we didn't know um, until last week, but Adam Toledo had complied with police demands. The police officer asked him to stop running. He did. He dropped the weapon. He turned around and he put his hands up and he was still shot and killed after complying. I think that what I've been pushing for and what often you know, people try to justify is that Adam Toledo had no business on being on the streets at 2.30 in the morning. There are questions and accusations of his mother's parenting style and what allowed him not to be in the house at 2.30 in the morning. There are questions and accusations about his affiliations to gangs um, and risky street behavior, right? And what I've been pushing for is the rewriting of that narrative. Right, someone like Kyle Rittenhouse, also a 17-year-old boy, gets the grace of the media to be a 17-year-old boy, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who walked around with an AR-15 assault rifle, injured several people and killed two, was allowed to walk past police officers, right? No one asked him to put his hands up, right? Mm -hmm. No one shot him to death. He was safely put into a police vehicle and was given a trial. If Adam Toledo committed crimes the evening that he was murdered, he deserved an opportunity to live. And CPD robbed him of that opportunity that night. Are there gangs in Latino communities? Yes. Are there drugs in Latino communities? Yes. Are young people involved in those risky behaviors? Yes, but that is part of a much greater systemic issue 
that we have to be talking about, that I beg journalists and all media platforms to talk about. Systemic racism is prevalent in Latino and Black communities, and that shows through inequitable funding of our public schools and our communities. It shows through the lack of youth programming and services in our communities. It shows through the lack of employment for young people of color in our communities and police reform in our communities. Because the, the reality is this, there are risky behaviors all over this country, including in our white suburban areas, including up north in our white communities. But police officers aren't militarized the way they are in our communities. And so we really have to talk about what is the difference? People make accusations. We can't make correlations between circumstances that are different. And I agree. But the difference in the circumstances that white privilege allows young people like Kyle Rittenhouse to walk away from murder and walked into a police car, unlike Adam Toledo. And that has to be a conversation people are willing to take on. Yeah, and you brought up a good point that, you know, when he was originally shot by a police officer, we didn't have the, the full story. We were being told by the prosecutor what had happened. Um, you know, the police report, in the police report, it was listed, he, Adam was uh, described as being an imminent threat of battery with a weapon, that he was armed with a gun, things after seeing the video, the body cam footage, we know not to be true. If an officer made a mistake, or if an, actually I should say this, if an officer thought the shooting was justified, why, why falsify a police report? Is it coming from a place where they just don't want to admit they're wrong, that they, they don't want to admit they're wrong? Cause that opens the door for people to say, okay, let's, let's have, let's start to reform things. This is a perfect example. Look, even the police officer admits that they made a mistake. I mean, where do you think this, this comes from this like blue wall of silence or even like falsifying police reports? Where does that, where do you think that comes from? Sorry. I know that's like a big complicated yeah. question, but this isn't the first time we've seen a falsified police report in a case like this. Chicago has suffered immensely by police brutality and it's not new in the city of Chicago. It's not new for the black community, but more importantly, it's not new for the Latinx community. Mm -hmm. You think about the 1960s and 70s Division Street riots, right? We have, we have been at the hands of police brutality for decades. You have an Adam Toledo case, who's a 13 year old boy in the community of Little Village murdered by CPD. The state attorney's office is gonna do everything possible to protect their department. And I think that they took word after word after word without appropriate investigation. And that has continued to be the biggest flaw of CPD, right? That they can trust individuals in blue uniforms because of what they perceive to be the culture of the Latino community. A 13 year old boy out at 2.30 in the morning, there was a weapon on scene, that murder is justified. It has to be, right? Because in what scenario would that cop be wrong? And so they take that story and they run with it without a real investigation, without talking to community, without trusting regular civilians. 
it's always the individual with the badge in blue. And that is a culture that we have to change. It is a systemic one that has murdered people of color in this country for centuries. It is that systemic racism, that upholding of white supremacy that has communities of color protesting all over the country. So I think that there are a couple of things to admit that a police officer was involved in an unjustified shooting would have to be admitting that the department has internalized racism, that it is built, its very foundation lays on top of systemic racism and protects white supremacy. To admit that an officer was involved in an unjustified shooting means that people have to do some work within their own department and in this city. That means the mayor has to be accountable for that. That means the attorney general's office has to be accountable for that. That means every lieutenant and every surgeon, sergeant has to be accountable for that. Joshua, between you and I, I don't know if those folks want that accountability because that work cannot be fixed by simple reform. We talk about police reform over and over and over again in this country. We talk about reallocating funding. We talk about trainings. We talk about making sure that police officers are trauma-informed and the social workers should go to the scene first and that we should involve community partners when dealing with communities that are in need. But the reality is, is if the officers who are in the department don't believe that from within, don't believe that that is the change that is necessary, then they go to those trainings and excuse my language, they call it bullshit and they attend for compliance. And then they go to the streets and they do the same thing anyways. This is beyond reform. We have to rethink what does policing look like in this country? And why has it become so militarized specifically for communities of color? And we must grapple. We have to grapple with the root causes of CPD police-led murders in this country. So let me let me ask you this then. You know, I I had um, tweeted something out uh, on my own Twitter, personal Twitter page, basically saying, you know, uh, Adam Toledo didn't deserve to be killed. Uh, you know, shame on anybody who saw this body cam footage before it was released to the public and portrayed him as a threat. Um, yeah. And it's not like I have a million Twitter followers, so who am I on Twitter? <laughs> but <laughs> but there was a couple people that hopped on, hopped on and commented. Um, and it was a lot of like regurgitating these same talking points, almost like a robot. Uh -huh. Like it was justified. He was a thug. Uh, one person said, why are you defending La Raza? And I'm just like, Look, I could, I could like point fingers at you. I could say what you're saying is problematic. What you're saying is racist. I, I could go into, or short-sighted. I can go into any of that with people. But at a certain point, it feels like you're just spinning your wheels. Like in your opinion, what has been a successful way to approach dialogue on a topic like this with someone who is so adamant that someone like Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old boy, was a thug and 
it was and it was justified uh, to shoot him. Yeah, I mean, those conversations are never easy, and often I I have to rethink the way I pose the discussion and my perspective with every individual because everyone has a different lived experience um, and loyalty, right? To whether that's a, a sociopolitical belief or, you know, like the loyalty to CPD, right? And, and that's, it, that's true for a lot of people, right? I mean, look, I, I went to undergrad and got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. A lot of the people I went to college with and folks that I consider friends are, are cops, right? Like this for me isn't about individual loyalty to people that we care about that may serve in the department. This is a systemic issue. And I, and I often tell folks, you have to remove yourself from the, the individual factors here. This is not just about Adam Toledo. This is not just about the cop that pulled the trigger that night. This is about a systemic issue that allows a cop like the one who murdered Adam Toledo that night to pull a trigger on anyone who looks like Adam Toledo, Laquan McDonald, George Floyd, and every other young person of color that has been murdered at the hands of police. It's a systemic issue. The same systemic framework that didn't trigger any police officer to, mur to murder Kyle Rittenhouse. The night that he crossed state lines to murder people we have to address this from a systemic standpoint. To be honest, in this conversation, I can't even spit out the name of the officer that murdered Adam Toledo. You wanna to know why? Because for me, it's not about him. It is about a greater systemic issue that has forced cops, like the one who murdered Adam Toledo that night, to exist in fear of folks of color. They fear folks of color. They walk into these communities and they make irrational split decisions, not because Adam Toledo was a real threat, but because his skin color didn't allow certainty that he wasn't an imminent risk that night. And that is the real problem here. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you, br you bring up a good point. Um, when I watched the body cam footage, as soon as he was, as soon as Adam was at the fence, that he was dead. As soon as, I mean, you can't tell me, yeah, 20 seconds from the moment you got out of the car to the point where you are right in front of Adam, like flashlights on him, guns drawn, issuing demands. He whether So looking at the outcome, I can't help but think whether he had a gun in his hand or not, the moment he turned around, he was going to get shot. Like there was already a predetermined conclusion in the officer's mind that, this kid's a threat. I, I got to take him out or else I'm worried he's going to take me out. And you're absolutely right with that Cal Rittenhouse example. They Police gave him water. You know, thank <laughs> him. I mean, there's videos yeah. of this. Uh, and he's walking around with a weapon. I mean, it, 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 blows, it blows your mind seeing the, seeing the, the, um, the lack of, of um, humanity, not seeing the, the, the person, um, rather seeing a, a threat first and the person second. Uh, it's disheartening to see it. And you brought up a good example with the Division Street riots. I mean, talk about a threat, uh, like thinking of like the threat of the other. 
like police officers seeing a bunch of Puerto Ricans in one spot having a good time. Oh man. And, and the outrage that came of that when there was, there was state violence. I mean, even thinking about Fred Hampton, I, I don't know if you saw yeah. uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, but they left. They CPD got off clean in that in that movie. They just put all the blame on the FBI. So it just totally took out that history on the CPD's involvement in the assassination of Fred Hampton. So we yeah. again, we've seen this countless of times. So looking at your work in in a number of organizations, Illinois Latino Agenda, Puerto Rican Agenda, Puerto Rican Cultural Center. Uh, can you give us a sense of, you know, what work are you specifically doing to ensure that the investments you had talked about earlier in our conversation? Um, so, so what are you, what are you involved in to ensure these investments are being made here in Chicago? There's a couple of things. We're in the very beginning stages of what this work looks like, but I want to affirm organizations in Little Village, specifically organizations like in Lasse, right, mm-hmm. um, and Katya Nukes, who's who's doing phenomenal work um, in Little Village and has been such a great support system for the family of Adam Toledo, right? Are the issues in Little Village similar to the issues in communities of color all over the city of Chicago? Absolutely. Uh, Because there are systemic similarities. Um, But we have to listen to the organizers of Little Village and and what they want. And I'll say a couple of things. Um, Gangs exist for a reason right? They provide community, financial resources, a sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The ability to climb some type of power ladder, right? You think about an involvement in a game, your ability to climb that power ladder are all things that we can provide within community outside of a gang, but the city does not. We can provide equitable funding for our schools so that we can provide meaningful program for our young people so that they can be involved in arts and culture in workshops that lead them into workforce to provide job opportunities for our young people so that they make livable wages and not poverty hourly rates. Right? Like, so that they can see themselves as financial contributors to their family and a part of a process where they can see themselves climbing that power ladder, their ability to make a difference, to be an agent of change. We have to create those opportunities. That means ensuring that the mayor and the governor understands how to allocate funds appropriately to these communities. That means looking at city and state budgets and making very specific demands. And I say demands because this isn't a negotiation. We can no longer negotiate with the lives of our young people. We have to hold folks accountable. Uh, Some people call that good tension. I call it intentional tension. We have to be intentional about the tension we create with our elected officials. They have to see us as a body of people who are going to hold them accountable and be consistent. And that's important, right? We have to identify every sector within our community that's not doing well. That also means housing. We have to 
ensure that our young people and our families live in humane apartments and houses, that they have quality housing, that they're not becoming sick because of the lead in the paint and the mold in the wall, because no one cares about those tenants. You know, they're just people of color, they're less than, it doesn't matter anyways. We have to do away with that reality for our community. And so we have to target every sector of the work that our families live within. And we have to make sure that, that they are ran humanely and funded equitably. Um, and, that, and that's gonna take folks like the governor, the mayor and city officials to allow us to be at the table in a more permanent way, right? That they don't just take our statements and use them as bite sounds in their own press conferences that they don't use our work and our mission and visions and use them as bite sounds when talking about budget, but that they become a reality for the people of color in this city. You're looking at the budgets. It's a reminder that CPD makes up force to the Chicago Police Department takes up close to 40% of the, the city budget here in Chicago. Uh, we can get into CARES Act funding and how much money C how much money CPD took and how much money was left over that wasn't used or allocated to help small businesses that were struggling, help people with it's rental criminal. assistance. I mean, it's it's absurd. And I did see this one. I, I for I can't remember who said this, but there was a, a quote that I had read that we invest in what we care about and we police what we don't. Um, so we're investing in all this policing. We're not, and we're not investing in things like you're saying, like a good education, good jobs. I, I, I we totally miss that point in, in this discourse. When we talk about a, a story like Adam Toledo, where we're in the midst of a pandemic and even then people were still struggling. And if you have a gang, a gang member or a gang that's saying, look, you, you go get that car. We'll give you we'll give you two G's. And I mean, that's groceries. That's helping your family pay the rent. Like you could you it can be a very attractive life because we're not creating the avenues for people to be be successful. We're setting up people in the city, in my opinion, we're setting up people in the city that aren't affluent, don't have generational wealth. Um, don't have the resources that put them on third base while everybody else is just trying to get to first. Um, if we're not doing that, then we're creating a powder keg scenario where we'll have more people dying and not just at the hands of police. We'll just have people dying because they don't have proper shelter. They don't have proper access to nutrition. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, such a, a nuanced reality. And I think that's just something that's always missing from these discussions, Jesse, and it's always so frustrating where it's almost looked at as he did something wrong. He shouldn't have been there. Who's to blame? Oh, it's his mom. Well, why is his family in this situation to begin with? Why don't we start at the root causes rather than trying to figure out what the band-aid approach is? Um, yeah. it, it's just, it's just mind boggling to, to understand or for me to try to wrap no. my head around how, you know, media empowers that it, to portray this. It is. And you know, it's, uh, no one questioned why Kyle Rittenhouse's mother allowed him to cross state lines with an AR-15, right? No one questioned her parenting, right? No one put that mother through the type of critique that Adam Toledo's mother has to go through, right? And, and that's putting it politely. <laughs> um, she's being slandered and it's unjust, right? 
people often question the defund police movement, right? And you, you'll get Twitter posts and Facebook posts that say, then don't call the cops when you need help, mm-hmm. right? And there's that narrative that if you want to defund the police, then don't call them, don't count on them. The reality is this, and you know, there's also a lot of comments about how activists were talking about police reform or the reallocation of funds in the city of Chicago and in the state of Illinois, how we're not grappling with our own issues within community, right? And that means uh, black on black murder, brown on brown murder, black on brown murder, right? And, and, and all of the combination of those things. And people often assume that we're not grappling with gang violence and drug abuse in our communities. But the reality is this, equitable funding in our communities and quality resources in our communities and that reinvestment to really build communities for the people that live within it, right? We're not building communities for uh, urban developers and yuppies to move in. We have to build communities for the families that reside there. And we have to truly talk about what policing looks like in this city, right? and rethink it completely. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan porque when we come back, we're going to wrap up our discussion with Jessie and hear what she is most obsessed with and where she thinks is the best place to eat Puerto Rican food in Chicago. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Asking all of uh, all of our recent guests uh, some really hard hitting questions to end our conversation together, um, and I don't know this one I think is going to be a tough one for you. But uh, in your opinion, being a, a boricua here in Chicago, what is the best place to eat Puerto Rican food? Oh God. <laughs> It's like, I can't answer that. These business owners are going to jump me after this. <laughs> the best place to eat Puerto Rican food. Well, well, first, I, I, I'm i going to contextualize my answer. Okay. I'm going okay. to. All right. 
Um, I'm a I'm a type one diabetic. I've I've been a type one diabetic since the age of 20. Um, and you know, often health experts will tell you you have to change your individual behavior to combat that type of chronic disease. And actually, we're gonna be hosting a health summit tomorrow and Thursday, really talking about chronic diseases and health disparities in the Latino and Black community. And so at the age of 22, I chose to decolonize my lived experience. And that meant my relationship with food, right? Um, I'm convinced, man, corned beef and Spam and la lata de salchicha made me diabetic. <laughs> um, and so I had to change my relationship with food altogether. I've chosen uh, not to take insulin, right? And I'm supposed to be insulin dependent because I'm a type one diabetic. Um, and I've chosen not to take insulin and to really be on the journey of controlling my diabetes um, in a different way, right? And, and decolonizing my relationship with, with food. And so I don't, and people, you know, Boricuas around the world are going to kill me. I don't eat rice. I don't eat beans. I don't eat any carbohydrates. I don't eat pan con mantequilla, tostones, none of it. Because I can't, right? If I, if I want to live a really long life, I just can't. Um, and so my, my parents make the healthiest versions of Puerto Rican and Caribbean food that really allows me to be on this journey of living a long life with diabetes. Um, I will say though, in between the flags, there are a ton of Boricua restaurants that offer the best versions of Puerto Rican food, right? And so I invite everyone to come to La Division and, and eat well. Uh, however, this far without, I don't, uh, and I haven't yes to that insulin decade. shot. It's, it takes a lot of work, I'm sure. So congrats yeah. on making it. Thank um, you. What is something you are obsessed with? This can be related or unrelated to Puerto Rican culture, um, movies, TV shows, reading books, hobbies, whatever. Um, what's something you're obsessed with? Mm. I'm, you know, people who know, I'm obsessed with working out. I work out seven days a week, two hours a day. <laughs> and if you, if you catch me on a day where I didn't hit the gym, I'm like unpleasant. It's like, running into me with no coffee, right? Um, and I I am, and then an unpopular thing that folks wouldn't know about me, and it's just not one of the things that I publicize, I have a real obsession for cigars um, and cigars that come from the Caribbean and the most natural ways to make some of the best tasting cigars. I, you know, my favorite cigars come from Vinales, Cuba, and there is just such a natural way to put together a cigar. And look, after a long day of, of work and, and activism and organizing, like kicking back and lighting one of those up is probably outside of working out the most relaxing thing. <laughs> it's like my self-care moment, right? Um, and a lot of folks don't know that. I don't really talk about like cigars and obsess with them publicly. Um, but you know, I have my, light, my nice little box of cigars and everywhere I travel, you know, people pick up like shot glasses or shells or rocks. Um, I have to find cigars that are produced by the people of that country and bring them back home. Okay, I love it. Awesome. Um, definitely knew <laughs> about the workout thing. Uh, definitely ad admire that. I always, I dread going to the gym, but I love it once I'm done. 
I just haven't yep. got in that mindset to like get into that rhythm. I'm sure like for you, it's like second nature, but maybe one of these days you'll tell me what like are the good machines to do. Cause I always feel like, uh, 2001 space odyssey, you know, the monkeys, like, <laughs> I don't know how to use this machine. I feel like people are staring at me. I don't have the confidence. Yeah. Yet. I don't have the confidence yet. One day I'll get there. Um, yeah. Anytime. For people that want to keep things going, keep up with you. Uh, how can they keep up with you on social media, website, or any of the organizations you're a part of? Yeah, no, I mean, all of my personal social media platforms, um, uh, advocate for the work and I publish a lot of what we're doing. So Jesse El Fuentes on all handles, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and for Puerto Rican agenda work, you can visit PuertoRicanChicago.org. Jesse Fuentes, thank you for being on the Paseo podcast. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today, familia. I hope you enjoyed this, but if you did or didn't, let us know, podcast at gmail.com or at podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Stay tuned next week for an all-new episode of the podcast. We welcome black Puerto Rican performer, storyteller, and comic Melissa Dupre to the show. You may have seen her on stage or on your TVs in shows like Chicago PD, Empire, and currently in a recurring role on Grey's Anatomy. We were going to share this episode this week, but had to switch things up given the national news. As always, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a new story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, baseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast.gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.